Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Another week, another chance to excel, O'Toole. I like the <laughs> attitude, Hollister. Oh, thanks nice. so much. Yeah, maybe I have a good course, attitude. There's another interpretation, meaning we haven't excelled yet. But this could be the week. This okay. could be the week where this it happens. This could be it. Uh, why not? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So we had some great people writing in this week, and I just wanted to go over a couple of them. The first thing is Cliff uh, asked us, if we discuss our picks, um, our list of six picks before we do them, or if we discuss the movies beforehand, and I will stand in a courtroom, put my hand on the Bible, (laughs) and say, we don't ever talk about what the other person's going to say. And the reason he asked upon further inquiry by me is because he said, is it possible that O'Toole is that smart? That she just has all that information when you say things at her fingertips. And the answer is, yeah, you really are. So I just want to give you those shout outs because I know you wouldn't do it yourself. That's so sweet. Wow, that's so sweet. Unless, of course, Cliff is really Cliff Clavin. I don't think so, but no, she just has all that information in her head. I don't well, know where. Yes, you can assure Cliff that we talk to each other as little as possible yeah. during the week. <laughs> um, not because no, you're making it sound like you don't want to talk to me. Okay. Alrighty then. Oh, see, okay. already I'm not excelling right out of the chute. Okay, and then also Janet from New Jersey, um, she uh, sends us stuff that we watch all the time. And what, what did we see recently that was her suggestion? Well, she was the one who recommended Offspring, and a lot of our listeners have yeah, contacted exactly. us to let us know how yeah. much they're enjoying that Australian series. So that's all thanks to Janet from New Jersey. Right. So she says, Jack and I just finished Netflix Border Town, a Finnish crime drama. I wouldn't really recommend it necessarily. Now, I'm not quite sure what that means, but um, though we liked it, the main character, Carrie, his family and the police force are terrific. And we really enjoyed seeing something from another part of the world that we normally don't see. So if anybody else has seen it, I don't know when I will have time. We're so chock full busy right now, but... um, but at any rate, that's a big recommendation from Janet, who brought us a bunch of stuff we really liked. I'm definitely going to check that out because okay. the fact that the series takes place on the border right between Finland and Russia. Oh my God. What does that um, remind you of? Of course, you know, okay, Cliff, I, I'm not the <laughs> one who remembers all those things. On, um, what, I, I know the show. The Bridge. Uh, who are you? Marco Ruiz, Chihuahua State Police. She's American. Car came from El Paso. Where it was the American remake of a Danish slash Swedish series that took place on their border, and we moved it to the U.S. Mexican border. Canceled after a season, but great premise. Mm, okay, and then also um, Anna, who walks talks with us a lot on on Twitter, she agreed with me on the beautiful, fantastic. And suggested that you should definitely see it. And she said it's a feel-good movie without being a silly movie, which I think is such a good point. And it's very original. And what I liked the most about it was its sense of humor. And I know I mentioned that, but not as articulately as she did. And then also we made the decision this past week that we're going to, we will be going again to the Hampton Film Festival. We didn't go last year. Uh, we went the three years prior to that, but we're going to be going this year. And it was just announced that guess who's going to be honored there? Julie Andrews. Yeah, I mean, you're a fan. I'm not. You're anti-Mary Poppins? Well, you know, I thought Mary Poppins was actually rude to the children. 
thought she was oh, condescending. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to have to revisit Mary Poppins. Yeah, I remember seeing Mary Poppins. I was maybe in the fourth grade or second grade or anything. We went with our, our whole family. And I remember thinking, I'm glad she's not my nanny because she talks to them like they're stupid. The nominees for Best Performance by an Actress are Julie Andrews in Mary Poppins, Anne Bancroft in The Pumpkin Eater, Sophia Loren in Marriage Italian Style, Debbie Reynolds in The Unsinkable Molly Brown, Kim Stanley in Seance on a Wet Afternoon. The winner is... Julie Andrews Um, okay, moving right along. Okay, all right, I went to see something this weekend, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I was thinking maybe, is there any way I could not even <laughs> include you in the conversation? Snatched. I went. See, that's something that Cliff should keep in mind. Not only do we not talk beforehand, <laughs> we try to just sneak behind each other's yeah, backs. You yeah. saw Snatched. How was it? I was tempted. I love Goldie Mom, Hawn. look how fun you were. Pack your bags. We're going to South America. Absolutely not. Everybody knows you need two years to plan a vacation. You don't do anything fun anymore. That's not true. I've been taking sculpting lessons at the Y. Ta-da! I told you I would not acknowledge that. That is frightening, and you made that. Okay. Uh, well, you know, uh, how was it? Okay, I think we have to start with the fact that it, j- it becomes a train wreck <laughs> the minute Amy Schumer goes out of her genius sweet spot. And I realized watching this movie, it helped me to define what is so good about her. She's really a genius when she applies her, her lack of filter you know, she has no narcissistic filter to anything she presents about herself. So, so the way she sees family relationships are great. I mean, that's, that's who she is. That's what she does genius in her genius sense. In the first half hour of Snatched, when she's applying what she applied to her father in Trainwreck to her mother in Snatched, it's, you know, dollar for dollar equal to you can't wait to see what's going to happen next. Okay, then she goes out of her sweet spot. And when she has to go out of her own experience, so she's kidnapped and she's on a, in a third world country in a romp that's ridiculous with absolutely no humor because she's got no filter to apply it to. And that's when we suffer. Well, you know, any screenwriter will tell you it's always, that's why they call it the Death Valley of Act Two. Act two is where most scripts go off the rails. Well, this one definitely, but it never got back on, you know. And Goldie Hawn who shines in these real life moments like in the again that first half hour Goldie Hawn has every expression that you loved in First Wives Club and Private Benjamin you know it's it's all her she's all there it's great okay and then when she goes into this kidnapped arena too where she is you know she doesn't she doesn't have the depth of of acting chops to be able to show real fear. You don't think? No. <laughs> show me where has she shown real fear in anything else? Because she I doesn't like play. Her her she doesn't role. do fear. She does funny comic Goldie. That's what she does. In in Private Benjamin, when her husband dies, even that was ridiculous. I mean, she it was w- hilarious. Yes, it but was it's very, not very funny, funny when your husband dies at the wedding. Excuse me. <laughs> 
Is green the only color these common? You know something, though, that surprised me about Goldie Hawn? And I use this in quotation marks. She only has 33 credits. Susan, well, tell me one of them where she no, but, shows... No, but Susan Sarandon, who's almost exactly the same age, she's also 71, a month older than Goldie Hawn. She has 144. Goldie yeah, Hawn also, is so well-known. I just assume she'd been in a lot more movies than that by now. No, actually, she took a 22-year hiatus. See, so I don't have that many movies yeah, to choose from. No. But whatever movies you do have, she there's not a serious moment in these movies. You know, she doesn't she doesn't have that in her in her repertoire. I'm sure I've told you this before, but you know I once ran into Goldie Hawn. We went through customs together in New Delhi. Like she was holding your hand or what? Well, we were side by side. It was so funny because we were there during Holi, which is a big festival in India, and one of the ways they celebrate is they throw a lot of colorful paint (laughs) and so little kids love to find tourists with very light colored hair and as the tourists are driving by in a rickshaw or what have you kids will sometimes drop water balloons filled with paint on the tourists going by below Mm. so I am so jet-lagged I arrive in New Delhi I feel this thing hit the back of my head and I'm like did someone just throw a watermelon at me okay I got soaked in colored dye. My hair was purple and green and red and yellow the entire time I was in India. I just could not get it out. Well, you probably fit right in because there's a lot of colorful things in India. I mean, it's a visual delight. But there I was at the airport and I see this woman. I'm like, wow, that's one woman who has it even worse than I do. And I realized I was staring at Goldie Hawn. Mm. And maybe 48 hours later, she was presenting at the Oscars. So whoever does her hair should really get a lot of credit because they got that stuff out. Well, thank you for that interlude. We're going back on track Okay, now. well, you can tell Cliff. <laughs> Clearly, you don't roll with it like I do. But, okay, well, I'm going to put in one more. Okay. I mean, I'm going to put in a blast from the past film, Cactus Flower, from 1969. She won the Oscar for this part, and that is now 47 years ago. I remembered well, and uh, again, we have not discussed this. She's earnest. I think the movie is worth watching just to see Goldie Hawn and Ingrid Bergman dance together. No, I I would agree. It's It's a great movie. Okay, so I think we should move on now because we're going to be reviewing on television National Geographic for the first time in the history of National Geographic is doing a series which is a narrative series which is somewhat fictional but it's based on a... a biography written about Albert Einstein. And so we thought, or you thought, because you're the smart girl, <laughs> you thought it would be fun to do a list of six of scientist movie type movies, right? Around science? Math or science. Math or Well, I forget, you know, what? Well, actually, mine, mine fits in both. Do you want to kick us off? I'm just going to exclude hidden figures because we did a podcast about it. I know. And you know what? I did the same okay. thing. Exactly. Yeah. Well, but, I, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned it, though, because certainly the, it, 10 years from now, we would have had it at the top Absolutely. of the list, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this one, it might overlap with something on your list, but I'm going to go with Goodwill Hunting from 1997, for which Matt Damon and Ben Affleck famously won their Oscar for Best Screenplay. That's an interesting choice. Thank you. Well, then I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> Yeah, I love that choice, actually. Yeah, okay, you may leave now. Okay, I'm going to start with Fat Man and Little Boy. It came out in 1989, and my daughter was, you know, she was like two and a half years old, and my um, now ex-husband, who we refer to as H2, second husband, 
he was away and I just needed to get out. And I went to this movie because it was playing nearby where we lived. I didn't know anything about it. And it's based on a true story about the atomic bomb, about creating it, you know, Project Manhattan. And Little Boy was the, the name they gave for the first bomb that was dropped in um, Hiroshima. And Fat Man was the second nuclear weapon that was um, uh, dropped in Nagasaki. And this movie was so jarring to me because, you know, it's so funny because um, John Cusick plays a young genius guy who everyone loves, nicest, nicest, nicest. And this is actually what happened. It's a true story. Toward the end of when the bomb was about ready, he made a mistake and he dropped this atom that he was working with or something, and he was exposed to radiation that he knew was going to kill him. Oh, wow. And so he was taken immediately to the um, commissary, and he died an excruciating radiation-based death. And that's sort of the end of the movie. And, and But there, you know, there's such dissent from this, from this liberal person who versus a conservative, and Paul Newman's in it. The ending is brutal, and it never left me. But it is the true story of Project Manhattan, where they sequestered all these great, brilliant minds to see if they could um, make the bomb by the end of the war. And then when Germany um, surrendered, all the people in Project Manhattan were like, oh, my God, we didn't do it in time. Like you know. And then they said, well, you know, the Japanese are still fighting. And then people started to realize maybe we don't even want to make this bomb. It, it's really, really a good movie. And I don't know if it, if it crosses the, the, the time barrier, um, but I'm going to watch it in the next couple of weeks. So talk about a hashtag blast from the past films. You know, um, I, I picked Fat Man Little Boy. Okay, what do you have next? Okay, I'm going to go with Sneakers from 1992 and this movie had a packed cast Robert Redford, Sidney Poitier Mary McDonnell, even the likes of James Earl Jones and Ben Kingsley Dan Aykroyd and it was written and directed by Phil Alden Robinson who was also the writer-director of Field of Dreams This LTX-71 concealable mic is part of the same system that NASA used when they faked the Apollo moon landings. Worked for them. Shouldn't give us too many problems. I mean, should I see it? I mean, do I need to go see it? It's not, you know, deep and heavy, like talking about the atomic bomb. It's more enjoyable (laughs) and, you know... It's more Goldie Hawn, I would say. Than... Okay, can I just say, have we done these like role reversals where I'm doing these deep, you know, last week, same thing happened. Remember, I did a foreign film last week. Yes, you did. Yeah. yeah. I know. <laughs> I was shocked. For my next one, I'm going to do Jodie Foster in Contact. Oh. Remember the 1997 Ellie Arroway? Do you remember Carl Sagan? Yes, I do. Based on, yeah, based on Carl Sagan and Andrean's book, Contact. Um, now Carl Sagan is, as people who know who he was, you know, he wrote about the stars and about galaxies beyond. And, and I actually had the opportunity to have lunch with he and his wife, uh, one summer in the Hamptons. And he was there for the whole weekend staying with friends. And I went over, I was over there for the day and, um, and I, you know, at, at lunch, he regaled the entire table with the book that had not at that point in time come out in the movie yet. And, you know, she, it was, it was funny because he was the talker. She said basically nothing, but I learned later that she was really the brains behind the brawn on that, on that little duo. And they both wrote it. 
And um, I don't think, I think he died before the movie came out. But to me, Contact was just a wonderful, wonderful film. And again, Jodie Foster at her finest in playing this feminist type person who was committed to her craft and what she wanted to do. And almost the same character, just without... Um, without any, he puts the lotion on its skin or she gets the hose again kind of <laughs> elements to it. Uh, so did you see it? Did you like it? I saw Contact in Alaska during the summertime, and it was the huh. bizarrest thing because I went to a very late screening. It was like a midnight screening. Saw the movie, came out, and it was still just bright as day outside. And I almost felt like I had taken off and landed on another planet. Huh. But it is kind of wild when you're up that far north and just never gets dark. Yeah, well, you know, what? A, well, I think it's a cool place to see it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what's your last round? What's the last okay, one? Okay, I'm going to go with the 2004 film, What the Bleep Do We Know? Starring Marley Matlin, who won the Oscar for Children of a Lesser God. This was a movie that was kind of a genre-bendy movie where she plays a fictional photographer, but they mix it up with documentary footage of interviews Hmm. with scientists and theologians, and they talk about quantum physics. It was very interesting. They were talking about how something can be in two different locations at the same time. Um, Through high-speed photography, and I mean really high-speed photography, they show how what we think can affect the shapes of molecules around us. So for example, if you're having happy thoughts, water droplets around you could be shaped in happy shapes. And yet if you're an angry person, the water droplets take on an angrier outline. I don't know what an angry water droplet looks like. Oh, you would know. It's like pointy and sharp edged and not round and smooth. Okay. Now I'm going to be obsessed with trying to figure out if the water that drops (laughs) around me when I'm angry. Okay. Another thing to do. Oh my goodness. But One last thought I'll leave you with is I remember they were talking to one of the scientists and he said, you know, the deeper you go into quantum physics, the more likely he thought would be to believe in God because he said, you know, when you get to that level, it's just hard not to believe in a greater power, whereas so often science and faith are seen as polar opposites. It's kind of an interesting concept. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because in Contact, in the book that was written, when he was dying, when Carl Sagan was dying, he didn't believe in God. He said there was no God. The universe was created, you know, with the Big Bang Theory, etc. And then people kept asking her after he died, did he come to any sort of awakening that said, okay, maybe there is a higher power, whatever. And she said, no, he never did. You know, she was very clear on the clarity of that. But, you know, it's, you know, it's the age old question that one one never really gets to find the answer to. I thought you were going to say not only did Carl Sagan come to believe in God, but he believed he was wearing a turtleneck. No, he we didn't, you know, we he didn't talk about it at lunch, but he what loved pity. what he did and the passion at that lunch table was really lovely to watch. It really was. Okay, my last one is A Beautiful Mind, which I'm sure doesn't surprise you. That's a very good pick. Yeah, you know, 2001, the John on uh, John Nash story, Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly. Welcome to Princeton. Who among you will be the next Einstein? Find a truly original idea. 
And it's the only way I will ever distinguish myself. It's the only way I will ever matter. Two couple of fun things about it. So um, Nash was, uh, you know, uh, in the end, in his later years, they basically just let him have free access to Princeton. And I think he taught a class where he just sort of talked to people and stuff. And my daughter happened to be at Princeton, and she would go to the library, and sometimes he would just sit across from her and study, and nobody ever bothered him. He was just sort of amongst them. And she said that she used to try to sit across from him because maybe he would make her smarter, you know, just by, just by sitting across from him. But he was very much one of the Princeton community, you know, those last years. And then he died in a car accident with his wife on the New Jersey Turnpike. Okay, so two, a couple things that I thought would be fun. There's a scene towards the end of the film where Nash contemplates drinking tea. And it's actually based on this true meeting he had with Russell Crowe. And apparently, according to Crowe, he spent 15 minutes contemplating whether to drink tea or coffee. <laughs> and how did he make up his mind? Did he come up with an equation? I, I, I didn't get any more than I just gave you. That's all I have for you. But I could make up the answer if you want. But can you imagine spending, you know, that everything is so complex when you think that you spend 15 minutes trying to decide if you want coffee or tea. It's an amazing thought if you think about it, right? Don't you it think? Is. And maybe he was actually trying to think even faster since he wasn't alone. <laughs> okay, well, Nash attended the Carnegie Institute of Technology on a full scholarship and one of his professors, he asked him to write a letter of recommendation for Princeton for him. And so here's a letter he wrote. Dear sir, the man is a genius. Sincerely. <laughs> Pretty funny. Okay, don't you think that's clever? Cute, right? Well, a Beautiful Mind is a fabulous segue into discussing genius because it's the same players behind it. Brian Grazier and Ron Howard, who are the executive producers of oh, I didn't Genius, know that. Uh-huh. they won the Oscar for Best Picture for A Beautiful Mind. That's so funny. I didn't even make that connection, but you're so right. And it was based on the book by... It was based on the book by Walter Isaacson. And this is yeah. what I find super interesting, Hollister. His book is called Einstein, His Life and Universe. And while watching these first few episodes of Genius, I kept thinking of Steve Jobs. <laughs> In terms of personalities. Well, he wrote the, he wrote the book. Yes, Steve he Jobs. did. He wrote yeah. the book, Steve Jobs, yeah, the one that exactly. Aaron Sorkin based his screenplay on. So Walter Isaacson, he's also been the chairman of CNN, and he was the managing editor of Time Magazine. He's one busy right. you know, guy. I mean, you know, there's a wealth of talent behind Genius, and just virtually the fact it says something. You know, you know we've often talked in the last couple of years about the golden age of television, but the fact that National Geographic is doing a narrative film, uh, you know, like it's the first time. I mean, that's it's a groundbreaker. It's a moment. It's a moment. And I, as somebody who's not very well read in the areas of science and physics and things like that, I'm, I'm fascinated by the um, problematic, <laughs> uh, uh, the problematic issues that our friend... Uh, had with people because he's so he was so clever you know I mean let's face it there was you know his the quotes that you have from him and just when you see him on film whatever he was so clever I just thought he was clever like that in relationships too I didn't know he was such a tormentor we're only yeah we're only three you know there's only three episodes in so we haven't seen the whole thing and Jeffrey Rush who plays him in his later years has not even really shown up yet but God, man was a pig. Well, he's there, <laughs> but you're right. The The flashbacks have skewed so far to the younger Einstein played yeah, by Johnny exactly. Flynn. Yeah, you know, we're, we're, I'm sure Rush is going to, you know, come bounding ahead and be brilliant. But we haven't seen that yet, so we can't really speak to it. But what, you know, what a self-centered creep. Yes, and 
what I find so interesting about what you just said is when they teach screenwriting courses, usually they say when you introduce your main character, up front, you should really make them the victim of undeserved misfortune so that people bond with them and are <laughs> Everything rooting for them. Well, deserved. this is the problem. I mean, when we're introduced to him, he's yeah. cheating on his wife with his secretary where he's got to, you know, wipe that equation off his secretary's back. And because they've so sexed him up and that's how we meet him, they do the flashbacks where he's going to break up in a horrendous way, you know, a passive aggressive way with Marie. And when you see the flashbacks, you're already thinking, I'm not really rooting for him. So even though it's no, set against this backdrop of Hitler is on the rise and anti-Semitism is on the rise, I never really bonded with Einstein. So Also, I looked up his first wife. I looked Maleva up because I thought, there's more to this than meets the eye. Turns out she might have been a very major role in his big discovery. Oh, I absolutely and think she, she was. And she has zero credit. Once again, the woman behind the man, like, hello, why yes. is this movie not about her? Which, again, is why I didn't bond with Einstein, because he meets her and he's like, oh, I must be in the wrong classroom. And it's interesting because I once toured the house he lived in, in Bern, Switzerland, and I inhaled deeply, hoping that it would have an effect on me. Oh, I know, of course. Did it? Sally, it did not, but that's where he he lived with Maleva Marich from 1903 to 1905. And well, when you read about her, we have to, you know, somebody has to do something about it because he, you know, he gave her credit for absolutely zippo zippo. And the truth is she was majorly involved in this. And after she left him, they did, she, he never did much after that. Well, Hello. Exactly. That's so, that's so right, Halster, because they got married in 1903. They moved into this house in Bern in 1903. They lived there two years until 1905, which has been dubbed his genius year, his miracle year, where he developed the special theory of relativity and began work on his general theory of relativity. She scored higher than him. Yes. The professor said she was smarter yep. than, you know, I mean, I'm like, oh, of course. Yep. And you know what's and interesting? She wasn't allowed to, she wasn't allowed to publish because she was a woman. I mean, the whole yep. thing is just so She was irritating. barely allowed to study. And what's interesting is they had a daughter together that first year, no one knows whatever became of the daughter. They know what became she of died. the two sons. According to this, she died. But apparently it's not all that clear. They think she might have been given up for adoption. Well, they talk about that she considered doing it, but then when she was born, and of course Einstein never even showed up, but when she was born, she died. Yeah, I don't think that's altogether clear in history. Huh. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, well, you know, I mean, obviously they can do whatever they want with the movie, but at any rate... So I'm not loving I'm not loving him anymore, and I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, he's always been somebody that I've loved. Monogamy is not natural. It is a construct of religious authority. Move in with me, Betty. You have a wife. Why can't I love you? And Elsa. For an expert on the universe, you don't know the first thing about people. You know, Jeffrey Rush said something very interesting. When he was approached to play Einstein, he says, you know, you go into a a great part like this, thinking you're going to have to play a genius every day. And he said, quote, there's a kind of clown-like naivete in his persona. And I think that's absolutely true. But again, the order in which they introduced us to Einstein did not have me rooting for him. I was like, okay, here's some so. philandering, self-centered guy who gets away with it because he's a Self-centered is such a lightweight word for what he was. It's, I mean, the man was a narcissistic fool. Mm-hmm. Who knows who this person really was in real life? Because we, you know, we. but I, I will say that it's sort of, I thought, oh, I was going to see this clever, funny, you know, great sense of humor 
you know, cra- you know, crazy hair kind of guy. <laughs> it's just not the case. It is beautiful cinematography, and they do yeah, a good job really of making a mind visual, as they yeah. did in A Beautiful Mind, as Brian Grazier and Ron Howard did in Apollo 13. No, you know, excellent. but it is interesting that Einstein, who was known to be such a daydreamer, and someone who really thought outside the box, they're pretty sure that when he was younger, he really suffered from dyslexia. Mm. But also interesting, he played the violin because there's always this connection between math brains and music brains. The mm-hmm. fact that he just wants to think for thinking's sake and his father finds that so indulgent and he finds his father so bourgeois. Well, it's funny because I'm going to talk a little bit later on. I saw the most amazing documentary. It's on HBO and I've already told a million people they have to watch it. And I do marketing by day. And the name of the documentary is becoming Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett, a number of times during this documentary, talks about how he wastes a lot of time thinking. And oh. I thought, yeah, I should waste so much time thinking <laughs> with the same results as you have. You know, you know, it, it's clear he's almost a little bit shy and embarrassed about the fact that he thinks like that. And the truth is, you know, when you take in a lot of information, as these men did these particular two men, and so many women do as well, you're taking a lot of information, then it is important to take the time to mull it over and to think it through. And so I think we should all spend a little more time thinking and a little less time taking in information, in my humble point of view. Natura naturans. Everything is connected. It's an idea I've been considering for a while now. Well, it's funny because, you know, they point out the women in his life that he's very distracted by whatever's right in front of him, mm-hmm. which they said is charming, but extremely yeah, I didn't frustrating. Find so charming yet. Yeah, yeah, I didn't see it either. Are you going to finish watching it? I don't feel the need, but oh Albert my God, Einstein. I can't wait. Yeah. Oh, really? You can't wait to finish it? See, yeah. for me, you know, I've read a lot about Albert Einstein, um, and I don't know if they're going to cover these three points, but I wanted to share with you three facts about Albert Einstein that I always thought were fascinating. Wait, do you want to share with me or with our entire, our listeners too? Well, I suppose if they're listening in. Okay, just be clear. I like clarity. Okay, all right. Okay. Okay, here's number one. He offered his first wife, Maleva Marich, his Nobel Prize as part of their divorce settlement. And what's really interesting about this is he had yeah, He was going to take all the money and she could have the piece of paper. Well, it's what's so interesting good. is he hadn't won it yet. He was just so confident that someday he would, that he promised it to her in their divorce settlement. But I'll give him this. When he did win it, he did give her the proceeds. You know, he sounds a bit like Sheldon on The Big Bang Theory, which I love. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, here's fact number two that I always thought was really, really interesting. He was asked to be the second president of Israel. He declined. And the reason he declined is he said, quote, all my life I have dealt with objective matters. Hence, I lack the natural aptitude. And I think that was probably a good choice. I think it's important to know what you're good at and what you're not. So good for him. I don't think politics was in his wheelhouse. Okay, and this is the last fact about Einstein I've always found very interesting. He wanted to be cremated. He died in 1955. As Jeffrey Rush points out, Jeffrey Rush was four when he died, so their lives did overlap. But the Princeton pathologist who was doing his autopsy removed his brain and kept it. I think I remember this because he thought it was going to be different than everybody else's, but it wasn't. Yes. He wanted to figure out what made him a genius. So he stole his brain when he was doing the autopsy. He didn't cremate it. And the son of Albert Einstein reluctantly eventually agreed. So all these scientists throughout the years cut his brain into pieces trying to figure out what was different about it. Yeah, they should have gone after her brain. 
You know, in 1999, a team of Canadian scientists said that he had unusual folds on his parietal lobe, which supposedly is good for mathematical and spatial ability, but pretty sure it's been discredited. I'm so over him, but I can't wait to see the rest of it. Okay, I decided to do another hashtag blast from the past film. Okay, what is it? It's a 1996 film, Shine, for which Jeffrey Rush Uh, won his Oscar. Yes, yes. Your stray dog's back. You want me to get rid of him for you? Sock it to us, Liberace. (laughs) He played another prodigy in that film... This was a musical prodigy, yep, a pianist. Well. And again, it was about the importance of finding the right place to nurture that gift, that you got to find the right teachers as they bring up ingenious. Sonia Todd was in it, who we all know as Meg from McLeod's Daughters. That same year that Jeffrey Rush won his Oscar, Emily Watson was nominated for Breaking the Waves. Uh-huh. Please don't do what you always do. Hide in your work. She's got her OBE from Queen Elizabeth. Boy, that's a tangent. <laughs> Again, if Cliff is out there, I don't find that that much of a you know, tangent. I, I'm like, Emily... okay, we're watching Genius, and now we're talking about, uh, you know, what? Um, Emily Watson plays okay, Einstein's okay, yeah, wife. He's got good. an Oscar. She's got her go. knighthood. So you're not going to watch the rest of it. I'm sort of surprised at that. So You know, again, great production values yeah. and great cinematography, but with so much stuff out there, I think I'd rather be watching I, Offspring, I get it. to be honest I totally with you. I get it. Um, okay, which leads me into uh, Becoming Warren Buffett. I've watched it three times. And were you looking for something different each time you watched it? I was. I was looking for the connectors. I was trying to connect the dots. Well, all right. I'm just going to tell you this one story about how he thinks, okay? Okay. So first of all, early on in the documentary, he talks about his father saying that you can't care what anybody thinks. You just have to do what you think is right. But, you know, great moral fiber and ethical fiber shines throughout this entire documentary. And that's the reason to watch it in today's world when we're all losing hope that there is any moral ethical fiber on any side of the aisle anywhere. So it's a good reason. It's just a hopeful, hopeful documentary about what is possible if we all behave properly. And I really, really like it from that particular point of view. But, you know, he's just different than us. And his wife, um, by the way, I will point out that his wife left Omaha in 1973 and she moved to San Francisco, and she called her friend Astrid when she left and said, go over and feed him. Astrid moved in, and he lives with Astrid. He's now married to Astrid because his first wife died. But So Astrid and, and he cohabitated in Omaha. Now, you got to know Omaha, Nebraska. I went to the University of Nebraska. You don't do that in, in Nebraska. Have a wife in San Francisco who you travel with whenever you leave Omaha. And then in Omaha, you have Astrid taking care of you at home. But anyway, you know what? It's a little Einstein-esque. I, it is. Well, the, it just goes to show, though, that Warren Buffett, I mean, nobody, I mean, who think, you know, nobody thought he had that kind of life. But anyway, so his wife's talking about how, one, you know, she was really sick and the kids were very young and he's in, standing in the bedroom and she said, you better go down and get a pan. I... I, I think I might be throwing up all night, you know. So he, she go, she hears him go downstairs, and there's this ruckus, bam, 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 bam. And he comes up, and he hands her a colander. No. <laughs> and she goes, Warren, I'm going to throw up. 
And he goes, oh, 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 sorry. So he goes back downstairs, bam, 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 bam. <laughs> he comes back up and he has the colander sitting on a cookie sheet. <laughs> wow. Okay, I, I tell you that one anecdote. By the way, it's filled with all kinds of heart-wrenching anecdotes and when he's answering questions, expressions on his face showing that he has tremendous, tremendous feeling inside of him, but he doesn't really know how to, you know, he talks about how he's very good with numbers and he loves numbers, but he's not so good with human stuff, which is much harder. Like he's just, he's just amazing. And at the end, watch the credits. Now I can't believe you. As if you have to tell me. I know, Uh I know. I hear you now. Watch the credits because he sings somewhere over the rainbow during the credits. He loves to sing and he sings a bit like I do. I think we could do a duet. I really do. Warren Buffett is the only person who, from scratch, built a company that is in the top 10 of the Fortune 500. I was always playing around with numbers. I find it enjoyable. I highly recommend it. It's on HBO. It's called, you know, Becoming Warren Buffett. Watch it for hopeful, uh, hopeful future for America. But secondly, watch it to learn how to behave. You know, how to still be authentically you and to apologize for that which you're not, but celebrate that which you are and lead from it. And I, I, I just can't speak more highly of this, of this documentary. Now, please tell me that they talked about his connection to Dairy Queen. No. Oh. Well, he talks about C's Candy. He explains why he picks C's Candy. But he also talks about, I don't know if you remember when Solomon, he had just bought Solomon Brothers, which everyone was quite surprised at because he doesn't like Wall Street. And he bought Solomon Brothers, and then Solomon Brothers did a terrible thing. This was, I think it was in the 90s. And anyway, <laughs> it's in terrible trouble. And they owed, like, I think it was either $15 billion or $1.5 billion or whatever it was. And he's meeting with the feds, and he says, well, you know, the only money I've, the only money I've ever owed is my mortgage on my house, which is very small, <laughs> which I've owned since 1952, would give me some time to get this. I mean, he just does the right thing. And then you see him testifying in front of Congress and you think, that's how I want people to testify in front of Congress. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's so watchable on so many levels. And if you're in business, you should watch it. And if you're in life, you should watch it. It's a really, really great documentary. And if you're not in life, we don't know how you're hearing us now. Oh, right. Well, who knows? Maybe, you know, we'll have to, you know, get in touch with Carl Sagan and see if he knows how we're doing it. Okay, so, um, so are you going to watch it? Come I'm on. adding it to my queue. Okay, you swear? I'm swearing that I'm adding okay. it to my queue. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, let me know when you've seen it. Every, you know, inquiring minds are going to want to know. You know, I think I might let Janet from New Jersey test run it for me. Okay. If Janet from New wait, Jersey wait, gives it a t- go. Wait, excuse me. Attention. <laughs> Attention deficit here. Basically, what you're saying to me, even openly in front of the world, is you trust Janet's point of view more than mine. Well, I'm going to pose it this way to Janet. <laughs> if Janet thinks that I should watch it before Border Town, I'll bump it up the okay, queue. Okay, whatever. Okay, so a friend of ours um, uh, suggested that we take a look at another documentary. And mm-hmm. you want to do the intro? Sure. It's called Relocation Arkansas, Aftermath of Incarceration. Which, wait, can we just stop the, the title right there? The problem with that title is everybody thinks it's about the prison system. Don't you think? I did. Yeah, say the title. Yeah, say the title. And by the way, I think it's a problem. I think it should be changed. Say the title again. Relocation Arkansas, Aftermath of Incarceration. Exactly. Problem, problem. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> 
Yes, so it's actually about the Japanese-American incarceration camps during World War II, specifically about one that was in Roar, Arkansas. Yeah. Being held prisoner by your own country, but still being fiercely American. I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't talk about it to people. This was something no one ever talked about. We were so scared after Pearl Harbor that we let our fears get the better of us. We found out that the government didn't tell us the truth. I'm an American citizen. Why are you telling this story? It doesn't just end with the person that was in the camp. We were not white, but we were not black either. Why aren't we accepted as Americans? The documentary was done by Vivian Schiffer, Mm -hmm. and it turns out her mother is in the documentary in a huge way. She's the mayor of this town. Vivian Schiffer, like O'Toole, was a, you know, high-pressured top lawyer, and she just quit the law to do this, and she wrote a book about it because she grew up around it. It's not dissimilar from Hidden Figures, who this young girl grew up in the town where these, you know, these women lived. Now, Hollister, you got to speak with the director of the film. We're going to play a little clip here from your interview with Vivian. And now I notice that you are the daughter of the amazing feminist mayor. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> is that what, obviously that's what made you do this? It is. From Wait, but from law to documentary? I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a filmmaker. I didn't, writing is, is relatively easy because you, all you need is either a typewriter or a computer and, and you can do it. You know, mm-hmm. as long as you're persistent, you can write. Now, whether or not. You can get it published or distributed is a different story. You do need others for that. But writing is a solitary endeavor. Filmmaking, on the other hand, was quite a mystery to me. And I never, although I loved documentaries, I never, I thought that was the sort of club you have to be invited, right? Someone would pick you out of a lineup and say, okay, you can do this. I I was mesmerized. What about you? Well, Hollister, did you know I actually had a great aunt who was in one of these camps in California. Yeah, my great aunt Peggy. And it was sad because my great uncle died before the war was over. So they never saw each other again. She was released. She was a concert pianist and a composer. And what I remember most about my great aunt Peggy is that the music she composed was too complicated for my piano instructor to play. We showed him her books once. He's like, yeah, I, I can't play that. But that's why I was very moved, particularly in the scenes where one of the women who had been in the camps played the piano, and boy, yeah. could she play as well. You know, it was a dark time in our history that we haven't examined enough, and I, I'm sad that the documentary wasn't done earlier so they could interview more people who were actually in the camps. But I think she does a really good job of giving us a visual feeling of what it would have been like to be in them and some of the things that they suffered. By the way, she's been in a ton of film festivals. It was definitely a stain on our U.S. history, but I remember reading the case when I was in law school. It's Korematsu versus the United States. This U.S. Supreme Court case upheld the constitutionality of FDR's executive order allowing for these camps. But what was, um, you know, they didn't put the Germans in because the, they... The executive order did also allow for the incarceration of German Americans and Italian Americans. But, you know, at that point, I think one out of four Americans had some German heritage. So there were 
quite a few. But I, I loved the scenes in the documentary too, where she interviews people and they recognize how many people were fighting prejudice. So for yeah. example, even when they were interviewing one of the people who'd been in the camp, she said, well, we didn't have a lot growing up in Arkansas, but the sharecroppers, they were poor. Or of course, they're talking about race relations in Arkansas and the desegregation of schools, it brought so many racial questions to light because in different states under segregation where there was only white or only black, people had to decide with Japanese Americans and Chinese Americans, where did they fall? It's complicated, isn't it? One thing though, the, the protagonist that we first meet, Paul, who's the son of the woman who's in the camp, it was very interesting that he said he became such a rebel against this stereotype, a positive one, but a stereotype of the model minority, right. where people just assumed right. he was smart because he was Japanese-American and that he would be disciplined because he was Japanese-American. And he smoked pot and got high and got arrested and didn't really apply himself in high school. And then he finally wakes up to the fact, as he puts it so well, that he squandered all the sacrifices his parents and grandparents exactly. had made. Right. And I thought that was a touching moment. Well, you know, it's funny because for me, the drop-dead moment that I played twice, I backed up and played it twice, was when this woman, I'm not sure who it was who says this, but she says, the thing that was so shocking to her is the way they put up these notices saying, oh, okay, please come to the train station. And everybody just went like lambs to the slaughter. Not one person said, no, I'm not going. <laughs> And she couldn't help but wonder what would have happened if more people had refused to go. And this is the same question, by the way, that was asked in Germany after all the, you know, after the, the Holocaust. The same question came up as why did everybody walk quietly into gas chambers? You know, now these, of course, were not gas chambers, and I do grant you that. It, it's just, it's just shocking. It's just shocking. And yet it was interesting, too, that they had art classes, in these camps, when they show the paintings that were done, it was a beautiful use of those images where she blended the actual paintings into the landscapes today. But what I what shocked me in the documentary was when they said the suicide rate amongst those yeah. interred was highest when they were freed. Because they realized, okay, now that they could go back home, they had no jobs, they had no prospects. Well, and they were afraid people were going to be mean to them. But secondly... The, the other, there's another moment in time when this woman said that her mother just kept going sometimes into this trance when they would be eating, talking about the sand that was blown in onto their food. I mean, it, there's nothing romantic about what happened to any of these people. There's no romanticizing what our country did during this terrible time, but I'm so glad she documented it. But I said to her, I wish that you could have gone to the government to see and interview people about really, how did they justify it? You know, how did they legally justify this? Because all it well, really does is show the one side rather than the government side of, you know, how they how they went about doing this. But it's, you can you know, read Korematsu versus the United States, 1944 <laughs> case. It was under the aegis of espionage concerns. Definitely worth seeing. Don't you agree? I do. And what fascinated me is that the mother they interviewed who was interned. She seemed like such a positive person. And her yeah. son asked her point blank. He's like, well, aren't you angry? And she said, what would that get me? It was almost as though her kids, especially he who said he was the rebel in high school and he was ready to just toss it all down the drain. He was usurping her painful experience and becoming angry himself. Whereas I'm thinking she was probably worried about why isn't my son applying himself? 
you know, it seems well, like he that, turned would his it, life would it around. Would it be but, that one could control anger because it doesn't get you anywhere? You know, that's well, she one, apparently found a way. That, yeah, not know? every emotion one has gets you somewhere. You know, it's she not, seemed highly, highly evolved. I gotta yeah, say, well, or highly defended. I'm not sure it's evolved. Well, as you've pointed out many times, that generation just did not speak of these things. Airing one's emotional laundry, for lack of a better term, was not yet a thing. World War II right. vets who experienced such horrors didn't talk about it. No, they didn't. That's true. But I think they paid for it. She seemed better adjusted than her kids. Seemed is the key word here. <laughs> yeah. Well, the son... I just, I thought, I can't believe he just said this, where he was talking about how he always held it against his parents. He was so mad at them because they're the ones that made him Japanese. I was like, <laughs> as if his mother hasn't suffered <laughs> enough. She has to hear this from her son. Yeah, no, I, you know? look, there are moments in this thing that are amazing, amazing, amazing. So congratulations for doing it, Vivian. Well done. And we'll put a link up on our site, screenthoughts.net, but look for it at your local PBS station. Thanks to Mara Neal, who brought it to us. Okay, and before we sign off, I, you know, I want to tell you that I'm getting divorced. From? Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> I thought you already had. <laughs> no, I didn't. If you go back to what I said, what I said is I wasn't willing to get divorced, that we're just going to cohabitate separately, but, you know, I'd just been, you know, we've been married too long for me to walk away, but... Next, this upcoming week, actually the day we that our podcast comes out this week is the last episode, the season finale, but sh- you know, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. I'm going to watch it because then I can sort of end the chapter and have the end at the end of this book of Grey's Anatomy. There are times when it's time and it's time for this to shut down. So you actually made it to the very last episode. I did because I'm a loyal person. Unlike you who sold me out already to Janet. Oh, I'm thinking, Hollis, you should be getting a pension already for your Grey's loyalty. But, you know, last week when I was talking about the dinner, that was one of my favorite lines from the book, which, of course, they left out of the movie adaptation. In the book, she stays with her original husband. In the movie, okay, they I'm give... I'm telling you I'm divorcing Grey's Anatomy. Well, in the movie... And I'm very emotional and upset about it. And you want to talk about a dinner? I do, because there's a great line in the book where in the movie, they, they give Richard Gere yet okay, another go young now. wife. You can keep talking to okay, whoever wants to continue listening. Give me number so I can finally just finish this thought. Okay, O'Toole, in over the, now. in the book, what they say Bye-bye is now. she stuck with him like a bad boy just to see how it would end. Let me help you help me. I'm so sorry. I hope you're okay, Hollister. Do you need anything from me? That's what you say when someone tells you they're getting it.